Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Yeah. 
Hello and welcome history friends, patrons all, to the Korean War episode 9. For the last four episodes, we've given you guys a good background course in the history of Sino-Soviet relations from early 1949 to early 1950. These months were the foundational stages of the initial Sino-Soviet cooperation, which led in time to Sino-Soviet coolness and occasional hostility which characterised the latter phases of the Cold War. We've seen that the road leading to the February 1950 Treaty of Alliance and Friendship between the USSR and the People's Republic of China was full of bumps in the form of Mao Zedong's hurt feelings, Joseph Stalin's determination to lord his advantages over the Chinese, and the major security concern in Mao's mind, which the unfinished civil war at home still represented. As promised, in this episode we're going to change our focus for a bit and look instead not at Soviet relations with China, but American relations with China. At its core, Chinese foreign policy was constrained by the fear of becoming dependent on the Soviet Union on the one hand, but of the need to acquire support to defeat the island base of the Republican Chinese on the other. Since the United States had a history of supporting the same Republicans and of actively sympathising with the Christian Republican leader Chiang Kai-shek, Mao could be forgiven for thinking that Washington wished to see him fail. At the same time, though, in that same Washington, the penny was beginning to drop as 1949 dawned. The supremely awkward question was coming to the fore. Was it worth holding off on normalising relations with the People's Republic of China, when such hesitation would only play into the Soviet Union's hands? This was a key question in American foreign policy, and at the top of the American policy makers and leaders, this question above all was one that could arouse consternation, controversy, conflict, or all three. Furthermore, any negotiations with the PRC on a legal level required the cessation of support to the Republicans, who were, of course, confined to Taiwan by the end of 1949, but at the beginning of 1949, where this episode will take off from, the question also became one of whether the United States could possibly abandon Chiang Kai-shek's regime in the name of the realpolitik which dominated. In this episode, then, we'll see the beginnings of these tensions start to boil, as the act of reconciling one aim with the other threatened to make everything go up in flames. Let's begin, then, as I take you all to early 1949, America. Song of the Week this week is brought to you by the Agora Podcast Network, which you'll be happy to know when Diplomacy Fails is a active member of. Not only that, but in the month of February, all members of the Agora Podcast Network would like to point you towards the Agora Podcast Group. We've seen in the last few episodes that I am trying to get more active in promoting Agora and the fact that when Diplomacy Fails is a member of it, largely because I think it's a good thing to point you guys towards other podcasts, especially other podcasts that have the stamp of quality that Agora guarantees. What could possibly be better than listening to a podcast, which you know, before you even listen to it, is going to be pretty darn good? Well, how about discussing the contents of this podcast with other like-minded history, political, or otherwise nerds in Facebook? A Facebook group for the Agora Podcast Network is the place to go for all such activities. Search out the Agora Podcast Listeners Group, or just Agora Podcast Group, or any one of those words, guys, you know how it works, and you'll be able to join up with many like-minded individuals just like yourself 
who are eager to talk about things they have heard or learned lately. So, without any further ado then, the song of the week this week is Casey Jones, a song released in 1939 by Mr. and Mrs. Byron Coffin. It's quite a catchy song, and I'm told it's actually quite famous in its own right, but I don't know all that much about it, so I figured I'd just let the song roll and you be the judge. In any case, enjoy guys, and we'll be back with episode 9 of The Korean War. Come all the rounders if you want to hear Story about a brave engineer Casey Jones was a rounder's name On a 6-8 wheel of boys he won his fame Call called Casey about a half past four Kissed his wife at the station in the door Founded in the cabin with his orders in his hand And he took his last trip to that promised land Casey Jones mounted in the cabin Casey Jones orders in his hand Casey Jones mounted in the cabin And he took his last trip to that promised land Put in your water, shovel in your coal Put your head out the window watch the drivers roll I'll run her till she leaves the rail For I'm eight hours late with the western mail Mrs. Jones now sat on her bed crying She just received a message For Casey was dying Said go to bed children Shh, hush your crying I've got another papa on the Alameda line Casey Jones Mounted in the cabin Casey Jones Orders in his hand Casey Jones Mounted in the cabin And he took his last trip to that promised land <laughs> By early 1949, it was apparent to both the Truman administration and to Stalin that the communists were destined to defeat the republicans, and that it would soon become imperative to get on the good side of the communist leader, Mao Zedong. On the 5th of January 1949, the United States distinguished itself from the Soviet Union by disseminating an interdepartmental memo entitled NSC 34 one. In this blandly titled document, the aim of American foreign policy was set down in light of the course of the Chinese Civil War. More than any other concern, the possibility that China would become a pawn in Soviet power and an appendage to Stalin's policies was heavily underlined. At all costs, it was emphasised, a Sino-Soviet alliance would have to be prevented. To successfully drive this wedge between two ideologically similar states, it was explained that Washington could make use of its strong suits, using the establishment of full diplomatic relations and recognition of the PRC to leverage Mao Zedong into a pro-American viewpoint, and the subsequent agreement of trade and economic deals to keep the Chinese sweet thereafter. By making itself indispensable to the Chinese, it was anticipated that Mao would never deliberately isolate himself and his nation by solely siding with Stalin. Yet, as the subsequent months of diplomatic turmoil were to illustrate, it was not such an open and shut case. One dominating factor existed that would prevent the establishment of full relations between Washington and the Communists. You guessed it, guys, it's the old chestnut of the Truman administration's historic support of Chiang Kai-shek, the domestic, civil and ideological enemy of Mao Zedong. In the event, the initial suspicion of American support for his Civil War enemies, followed by the belief that Washington would seek to involve itself in the tail end of the war to preserve the independence of the Republicans in Taiwan, 
contributed in no small measure to the relative alienation of America from communist Chinese considerations. What is perhaps surprising about the Chinese decision, suggested over 1949 but plainly established in the February 1950 treaty, was a very genuine surprise it engendered in American statesmen who had always believed up to the end that Mao would never deliberately exclude America from the equation. In particular, America's Secretary of State, Dean Acheson, who was a major player in European developments from 1945, was caught with his pants absolutely down. There was a strange contradiction present in American foreign policy at the time. While it was well understood that Mao would take offence to the continued relationship with Chiang Kai-shek, Washington proved immensely slow in cutting off relations with the Republicans. This was a determined strike against the American option, in Mao's mind, and we'd be well within our rights to ask why, if they knew it would so offend Mao, did American policymakers continue to support the Republicans? The answer to this question was relatively simple, guys. It revolved around the fact that a large US lobby, drawing on the traditions and history of American support for Chiang Kai-shek during the Second World War, proved remarkably effective at stonewalling any suggestion that the Republicans should be abandoned. The effectiveness of the lobby for the Chinese Republicans came from the fact that, even while the likes of Dean Acheson and President Truman believed from at least mid-1949 that the Republican cause was lost, they would require the support of Congress and the Senate to actually terminate the old policy of financial and material support to Chiang Kai-shek. That age-old problem of US presidents when facing down the division of Congress and the Senate were as relevant in 1949 as they had been 30 years earlier when the League of Nations idea failed to gain much support in 1919 or when Barack Obama more recently faced a strong Republican opposition in both houses during his recent tenure in office. But you might be wondering to yourself right now, exactly how effective could a lobby be at controlling US foreign policy? Well, to answer this question, on the 25th of February 1949, one Democratic senator from Nevada proposed a bill which would authorize $1.5 billion in military and economic aid to the Republic of China, in other words, to Chiang Kai-shek. The bill gained the support of 50 senators from both the Republican and Democratic parties, while it also had the important support of Henry Luce, who happened to be the publisher of Time magazine, among other private sector supporters and influencers. Incidentally, this bill motivated Dean Acheson to take proper control of American policy and to initiate a behind-the-scenes policy of opposition to such lobbies or bills in the future. March 1949 was also the calm before the storm in the Chinese Civil War, as Mao's forces had yet to cross the Yangtze River, and the Republicans at least had an apparently secure foothold in some portions of southern China, where foreign embassies from America and Britain continued to reside and operate. These embassies will become particularly important in the coming months, yet March was also the month that Dean Acheson decided to present his plan for the adoption, in gradual and cautious terms, of a new policy towards communist China, and the acceptance, however painful, of the fact that the Republic of China's position had, in his words, disintegrated. On four occasions over the month of March, Acheson and several of his allies appeared before the Senate Foreign Relations Commission to make their case. During each of the appearances, a visit was made by an American official in a varied foreign affairs position, as well as some senators who had a vested interest or some measure of expertise in the field. Acheson, it seemed, was trying to 
build a consensus around the normalization of relations with the communists and the abandonment of the Chinese republicans. One democratic senator present at the commission noted that If the communists respect rights, property, institutions, do business and allow our people to function, I think we should not appear to turn our backs on them. This, indeed, seemed close to capturing the mood. If the communists were not acutely villainous, who were the Americans serving other than the Soviets by keeping Mao's followers away? Atchison's commission prompted the British to make their own observations on the ongoing tensions between traditional policy and the new developments. London proved far more realistic and less romantic, you could say, in its adherence to old policies, but for a time at least it appeared that the British wouldn't pursue a definite policy without the Americans, so as to maintain the image of a united front, which was becoming important in the face of Soviet intransigence. In the midst of an official division of Germany and the merging of the different Allied zones by April 1949, the British were keen to ensure that the Chinese didn't become another staging post for Soviet ambitions in Asia, and they began to urge Washington to move forward with a recognition of the communist Chinese administration before Stalin could take advantage. Britain, it has to be said, was not the only disconcerted Western power. Before the end of summer 1949, London received messages from the Canadian, Australian, Dutch, French, Italian and Indian governments requesting firm and speedy recognition of Mao Zedong's regime so that these aforementioned governments would also know where they stood. Nobody wanted to be on the wrong side of history, guys, but it was becoming clear by spring 1949 that America's signal couldn't be waited for much longer. On the 21st of March, 1949, the British Foreign Office issued the following statement of its general views and that of Clement Attlee's government on the situation, saying... To refuse to accord any sort of recognition to a government which, in fact, effectively controls a large portion of territory is not only objectionable on legal grounds, but leads to grave practical difficulties. It would be open to His Majesty's government to recognise the Chinese Communist government as, at any rate, being a de facto government of that part of China which it controls and, at the same time, continue to recognise the central government as being the de jure government of the whole of China. By doing so, His Majesty's government would be adopting a similar attitude to that which they had adopted towards General Franco during the Spanish Civil War. London was thus attempting to forge ahead with a kind of third way that would hopefully please everyone, even though by refusing to stand determinedly on one side, it would inevitably appear weak. The British didn't necessarily care for the situation in China, so long as it didn't empower the Soviets. They were far less concerned with the plight of the Republicans than Washington proved to be, and they were far less attached to the notions of communist containment than they were to the more practical notions of reducing Joseph Stalin's powers. Two events occurred in April 1949, just as the Berlin blockade was winding down, which appeared to crystallise the American approach to communist China. The first was strategic. In late April, Mao's forces crossed the Yangtze River and began their roundup of Chiang Kai-shek's remaining strongholds. The advance proved devastatingly effective, yet its very effectiveness served to rally the pro-Republican lobby in the United States to mobilise their own resources and provide aid to the embattled enemies of Mao Zedong. Incredibly, even considering Dean Acheson's efforts to supposedly disengage from any increased support of the Chinese Republicans, 
The historians Hao Yu Fan and Jai Ji Hai noted that, In April 1949, $54 million in aid was extended to the Chinese nationalists, and a few months later another $75 million was appropriated for assistance to Chiang Kai-shek's forces. Washington's disengagement policy was therefore gradual and cautious, and sometimes ambiguous. Any time a concerted communist effort was made to defeat its enemies, the US lobby enjoyed a surge in support as it scrambled to deliver aid to its battered Republican clients. In the mind of Mao Zedong himself, the American policy of disengagement, supposedly undertaken by Atchison, was merely a repetition of past policies, the same body in a different skin. He noted on the Chinese New Year's festivities in late March 1949 that The US government has changed its policy of simply backing the Kuomintang's counter-revolutionary war to a policy of embracing two forms of struggle. First, organising the remnants of the Kuomintang's armed forces and the so-called local forces to continue to resist the People's Liberation Army south of the Yangtze River and in the remote border provinces. Second, by organising an opposition faction within the revolutionary camp to strive with might and main to halt the revolution where it is or, if it must advance, to moderate it and prevent it from encroaching too far on the interests of the imperialists and their running dogs. Mao Zedong may not have had it totally correct here, but in a later reflection made during a Committee of the Communist Party in September 1962, he did capture the essence of what the US hoped that Mao would become, a new Tito. Josip Broz Tito, leader of the Yugoslav communists and recently messily divorced from Moscow at this point, proved a convenient staging post for Western ambitions in Europe, at least until Stalin's death and the subsequent Yugoslav-Soviet rapprochement. By providing Mao with what he needed to establish his communist regime independent of Moscow, there was a hope in Washington that Mao would become like Tito and provide the West with an Asian staging post from which it could frustrate any Soviet efforts to expand its reach there. As we know from our previous episodes on Sino-Soviet relations, an independent communist regime was exactly what Mao Zedong wanted, yet he needed too much from Stalin in the initial stages for Stalin to take him seriously. Not until the PRC proved that it could fight and stand on its own two feet in world affairs would an alliance with the Soviet Union on Beijing's terms prove possible. As Mao himself noted in September 1962 when he said, After the victory of the revolution, in 1949, Stalin suspected China of being a Yugoslavia and that I would become a second Tito. Later, when I went to Moscow to sign the Sino-Soviet Treaty of Alliance and Mutual Assistance, we had to go through another struggle. He was not willing to sign a treaty. After two months of negotiations, he at last signed. When did Stalin begin to have confidence in us? It was at the time of the Resist America, Aid Korea campaign from the winter of 1950. He then came to believe that we were not Tito, not Yugoslavia. If American policymakers wanted to create a new Tito in Mao Zedong, they first had to be in a position where they could actually rely on him not to commit foreign policy gaffes, which would show them all up. Thus, the second issue to crystallise opposition to Mao's regime in April 1949 was an unfortunate event which occurred early in the morning of the 25th of that month, when communist Chinese forces, having crossed the Yangtze River, came upon the American embassy, which had once represented America to Chiang Kai-shek's regime. 
In the previous weeks, before the Chinese communists had crossed the Yangtze River, it had seemed sensible to leave the embassies as they were while the Republicans retreated, since this would provide a convenient route into Chinese Communist Party negotiations if Mao decided to cut his country off from Washington after all. Yet neither Washington nor the resident head of the American embassy in Nanking, in the southwest of China, could have expected what would come next. At 6.45am on the 25th of April 1949, over a dozen heavily armed Chinese communist soldiers stormed the US embassy in Nanking, loudly entering the bedroom of the ambassador, Leighton Stewart. Stewart's personal belongings were run through, he was accused of espionage and his staff were held at gunpoint while much of the embassy's food stores were made off with. Leighton Stewart was understandably outraged at this flagrant violation of diplomatic protocol and he cabled home to Washington his strong belief that any efforts to recognise the Communist Party in China at any early stage should not proceed. The affair was covered in the media, which only served to further anger the American public and arouse sympathy for the more respectful, it was believed, Chinese Republicans who had been so unfairly tossed out of the region. Leighton Stewart continued to criticise the Communists in his cables back home. On the 30th of April, he underlined the arrogance of the Communists and recommended that Mao's previous claims to maintain basic freedoms and human rights be placed under intense scrutiny. Furthermore, Stewart urged the creation of a united front of concerned nations who would refrain themselves from establishing proper ties or recognising Mao's administration until such requirements were met. Although the communists were extremely intelligent, in Stuart's words, they needed to be educated out of the murky haze of their own self-indoctrination. For these reasons, and because he believes the communists were not yet fit to represent themselves on the world stage, Stuart outlined why he believed the British proposal to grant de facto recognition to the communists should be avoided, since it would sacrifice a possible long-range advantages for immediate and relatively minor ones, we should not appear anxious to make the first move. Whether Mao's soldiers had lost the run of themselves in the American embassy and forgotten standard protocols in the process wasn't relevant. It was all too easy to equate the actions of his soldiers with the overall tone and bad taste of his communist regime. The diplomatic impact was intense. Dean Acheson felt pressured by the incident into claiming that American foreign policy would henceforth remain unchanged with respect to Mao Zedong and Chiang Kai-shek's Republicans. Publicly, at least, it seemed as though Acheson had responded to an incident with suitable enthusiasm, but privately, he continued to oppose the supply of any large-scale shipments of aid to the Republicans. While on paper this made sense, since it granted Acheson a position from which he could argue that American policy was comfortably neutral, in reality, Mao didn't grasp the fact that America had stopped properly supplying the Republicans, and he saw only the fact that Washington had stopped pursuing diplomatic leads with his regime. It is unlikely that Mao blamed his soldiers for this incident, or that he accepted Acheson would have been under pressure from home to give some kind of response to the incident in the embassy. Instead, Mao seemed to have viewed the ceasing of efforts as a vindication of his personal belief, not merely in American untrustworthiness, but in the idea that not only was Washington propping up Chiang Kai-shek, it was also plotting an invasion of communist China. Incredible as it may sound, considering what the Truman administration actually wanted, Mao Zedong strongly suspected that American armed intervention 
in support of the Republicans and that an actual war with the United States could be the result if the Communist forces pushed too hard or advanced too far in the course of their civil war. This indeed was what Joseph Stalin tried to threaten Mao with in late April 1949, before the invasion across the Yangtze began. Stalin's real motives, as we've learned, had more to do with keeping China divided and weak than they did with preventing any Sino-American war that would only benefit his interests. Yet Mao took this very seriously, and he was prepared in spring 1949 to fight America if it proved necessary. He was determined, in other words, not to roll over if Washington threatened punitive action against the communists while they were supporting Chiang Kai-shek. Mao, much like Washington, was caught between a rock and a hard place. Just as surely as the United States wanted to forge ahead with amicable talks designed at keeping China away from Stalin, the complications of the Chinese Republicans and the popularity that the pro-Republican lobby could mobilise in America prevented a total abandonment of the old policy. Similarly, Mao didn't want to have to tie himself to the Soviets and become dependent upon Stalin for aid and monies, yet because of the legacy of the Civil War and the evident American difficulties in abandoning the Republicans, Sino-American relations seemed almost irreconcilable. Until the Republicans were defeated enough to become a non-entity, or until the lobby was overcome, neither President Truman nor Dean Acheson could seemingly manage to make anything other than baby steps. And baby steps were not enough to a revolutionary Chinese leader badly in need of aid as much as he was in need of legitimacy. The Soviet Union, Mao understood, could provide both of these commodities, aid and legitimacy, at the expense perhaps of some of his own personal freedom of movement, but this was at least better than relying on the Americans, who seemed poised to intervene in the Chinese struggle on a scale Mao could not be totally certain of. How was Mao going to prepare for war with the United States then? Well, his first step was military. By seizing the Republican strongholds in the southeastern ports of China, an easy American landing on the mainland would be prevented. By developing ammo dumps and creating a retreat strategy with detailed fallback positions, Mao could then be confident that even if the Americans landed a large force of two million men, China could eventually bleed them dry. Even while Mao was confident that the Americans could not defeat his regime, he consistently feared having to confront the actual prospect of an American landing. Such a massive American intervention would keep the civil war alive, perhaps, for another decade. And the ultimate irony is that Mao didn't seem to realise, at least for some time, that the Americans were far less interested in a divided China than Stalin was. Where Stalin wanted China to remain weak and impoverished, Washington wanted to create a source of opposition to Stalin in Asia to prevent him from being able to concentrate fully on Europe. The second step towards preparing for war with America was diplomatic. Contrary to the expectations of many in the Truman administration, Mao Zedong announced in late June 1949 that China would lean to one side in the diplomatic relations of the future, indicating Mao's personal intentions to favour the Soviet Union over the Americans. Mao insisted that the Chinese Communist Party must ally ourselves with the Soviet Union, with the People's Democratic Countries, and with the proletariat, and the broad masses of the people in all countries, and form an international, united front. This declaration came as a shock to Dean Acheson. Perhaps the greatest shock he received in the theatre of Sino-American relations, until Mao appeared in Moscow later in the year. The impact of the diplomatic gesture, that is, the impact of Mao's declaration that he would lean to one side, 
was doubly shocking because Acheson understood that his efforts to reduce the pro-Republican lobby had also been dealt a blow, thanks to the continued and rapid success of the Communists over the early summer. If the United States determined to issue any recognition of the Communists at the point when Chiang Kai-shek's forces were on the ropes, it could prove the kiss of death to any Republican regime ever existing at all. Certainly, some in Washington may have believed that no Republican regime would have been a good thing, and this would, after all, have massively simplified matters in the Sino-American realm. But Acheson, if he held such cynical opinions, could never have allowed them to bubble to the surface. It was one thing to gradually wean the Republicans off their American aid, but it was quite another to, directly or indirectly, hammer the final nail in the coffin of the Republic of China. Neither Acheson nor President Truman were willing to go that far. In fact, what Acheson tried to do after learning that Mao would lean to one side was to pursue with greater vigour a normalisation of Sino-American relations. Surprising as this may have seemed, what Acheson was after now was some healthy damage control, and to achieve this he gathered another committee together. This time the goals were to place pressure on the Congress to recognise the Communist Chinese, but also to find a way to prepare public opinion for the act of recognition. When announcing the formation of a policy committee on China in late July 1949, Acheson noted that the Chinese Republicans had been unable to rally its people and had been driven out of extensive and important positions of the country. Thanks to Chiang Kai-shek's worsening military position, Acheson explained, American foreign policy options had been, in his words, sharply limited. Acheson added that, We must not base our policy on illusion or wishful thinking. The United States will be prepared to work with the people of China and of every other country in Asia to preserve and promote their true interests, developed as they choose and not as dictated by any foreign imperialism. Imperialism was indeed a dirty word, and was precisely what Stalin continued to paint the West as pursuing in his conversations with Mao. A few days after Acheson had formed the Policy Committee on the 5th of August 1949, a white paper on the situation in China was released, containing that committee's findings. Again emphasising the need to embrace more realistic policies, Acheson underlined the idea that it was abundantly clear that we must face the situation as it exists in fact. We will not help the Chinese or ourselves by basing our policy on wishful thinking. Wishful thinking indeed, for it was as clear as day to anyone that knew of Chinese developments that Chiang Kai-shek's regime was doomed. Under such circumstances, was there any genuine utility in holding off on negotiations with the communists out of some ideological or domestic political opposition? Ultimately, Acheson claimed the Chinese would throw off the foreign yoke, a not-too-veiled reference to the increased American concern that the Soviets were digging their claws into Mao's regime. Contrary to what the communists may believe or what Stalin had told them, Acheson was keen to emphasise that American policy would continue to seek China's best interests, as it had done in the past with its open-door policy of yore. Washington based its diplomatic platform for China, Acheson said, on respect for China's independence and administrative and territorial integrity. Echoing this idea, President Truman weighed in on the White Paper, which was a 1,000-page document that every important American statesman was required to familiarise himself with. President Truman declared that The mutual interests of the Americans and Chinese require full and frank discussion of the facts. It is only in this way that the people of our country and their representatives in Congress 
can have the understanding necessary to the sound evolution of a foreign policy in the Far East. The problem of finding ways to give practical expression to that friendship will continue to receive, day in and day out, the closest attention of this government. That the President was firmly on side certainly helped Acheson's mission, but within a month of the White Paper on China being published, another factor entered the already complex equation, the teeny, tiny detail that the United States was no longer the sole nuclear power in the world. Next time, we'll examine how the Soviet detonation of their first atomic bomb added further pepper to the Sino-American negotiations, as we nudge our story ever closer to its explosive conclusion. Until then though, folks, my name is Zach, and you've been listening to episode 9 of The Korean War. Thanks for listening, and I'll be seeing you all soon. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.